0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, a growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me this morning in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We're in a portion of our uh, Life of Christ series, whereby this uh, section from John 13 through 17. It's 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Five complete chapters of the Gospel of John. Often uh, referenced as the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, a series of messages that the Lord gave to His disciples on the night in which He was betrayed. And so here He is in the Upper Room. Interesting, they arrived. Uh, he sent Peter and John ahead of time and uh, followed a man with a pitcher and uh, to a house. They didn't even know where they were going. And part of the... Cloak and dagger, part of the uh, espionage at work. Remember, there's there's a plot against his life. And so uh, Judas doesn't know what house to go to. Judas doesn't know where to set up the ambush. And uh, it's pretty remarkable. So Jesus sends Peter and John to the to Jerusalem. And he says at the gate, and there's a man going to be holding a picture there. Follow him. And uh, whatever house he goes to, that's where you're going to go. And uh, you give the challenge and password, as it were. Uh, The master has need of your upper room, and the man will show you the upper room already prepared. And uh, there it is. So um, in any event, uh, they were probably there, I'm guessing, you know, a few hours. They they could have been there a terrible amount of time. They would have had uh, Passover, which is eaten very quickly anyway, and then uh, foot washing. And then uh, he introduces communion to them. And then uh, a few more messages in the process of this, including the tremendous Uh, prayer here of john 17 and and there's a lot of content in this Um, so for a few hours that he spent with his disciples and we're going to spend weeks (laughs) we're going to spend week after week after week i don't know how many weeks but it's going to be a significant uh, section of this life of christ series so anyway it's one of my favorite passages of scripture let's look at it john 13 Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. All right, so this is what we're dealing with. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege that we have to assemble together. This is a grace provision, Father. We thank you for this class that... uh, uh, it's gone on now for years and years and he's going to continue as we study to show ourselves approved. But Father, uh, this, this room was pretty special. This night was pretty special. And even though he uh, knew who his traitor was, he uh, remained faithful to your will, Father. And, uh, and I thank you for that. I pray that we will learn the lessons we need to learn today related to foot washing, that we would understand the humility principles that are being illustrated for us, that we would identify with our Lord and our Savior, and we would identify with the servant function that each one of us is expected to fulfill. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, now in the outline, we are dealing with main point three. And I failed to... um, Jot myself some notes as far as these slides. We'll just have to run through them. Uh, Point one, we looked at the grammar that introduced this. And one through four is just awesome. It's almost like the Gospel of John is starting over again in the grammatically remarkable introduction to this portion of the Gospel of John. Uh, In fact, theologians have even titled uh, John 1 through 12, the book of signs because of all the signs that he did. And then uh, chapters 13 and following, 13 through 21, they call the book of glory as they describe the uh, Jesus Christ returning to His Father's glory and the, the circumstances surrounding that. Just take a guess. Slide six, there we go. Good guess, right? Point three, foot washing is an illustration of spiritual cleansing. Foot washing is an illustration of spiritual cleansing. And we have these terms here in verses 10 and 11. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. He's got 11 believers and one unbeliever for his 12 apostles. And uh, so 11 of them are clean. 11 of them have bathed. They only need the foot washing. Um, Judas, of course, needs an entire bath. But that's beyond what we're going to look at here. Um So let's understand the principles here. And this ought to be pretty simple. Um, I like the fact that it is simple. I like the fact that it relates to our cleansing uh, when we confess our sins in 1 John 1, 9. But first of all, understand what this is not. This is not simply the hospitality-connected foot washing. This is not washing their feet as any host might do, welcoming them into their home. This prophetic pantomime should not be confused with hospitality-connected foot washing. This is a prophetic exercise. Jesus in verse seven tells Peter, "What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter so there 's something more at work here beyond um, you know the hospitality connected foot washing like we see in Luke seven or we see in First Timothy chapter five, something that might be done in the in the ancient world today we wouldn 't do such a thing but we would uh, we would still greet people at the door we would uh welcome them into our home we might take their coat if they're wearing a coat offer to hang that up uh you know place their purse wherever uh the kind of things you do when someone comes into your home in the ancient world it was common to uh uh in Luke 7 you'll see this where it was common to provide oil to uh, anoint the head or uh to wash the feet Jesus was pretty uh, clear here that simon the pharisee that had brought him into the house was really rather insulting um he says to simon do you see this woman i entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair you gave me no kiss but she since the time i came in has not ceased to kiss my feet you did not anoint my head with oil but she anointed my feet with perfume and so in the rebuke there for that pharisee named simon we we get a, a glimpse of what hospitality ought to be like and where he was very um insulting by not uh, by not extending those courtesies to jesus uh nevertheless that's not what was happening here in the upper room if that was all that was to it this was simply uh you know the the disciples came in with dirty feet Uh, uh, didn't understand that but he says no you don't understand it now but you will understand hereafter and this portion john 13 through 17 is all about the hereafter okay the hereafter in context is jesus going to the cross and going to heaven and the apostles remaining on earth and what's going to happen with jesus in heaven and the apostles on earth okay the church is going to be founded all right, and that's why we take so much of John 13 through 17 as being church-related, while still a mystery, not revealed. He doesn't use the word church here. It doesn't tell them that a uh, new stewardship is coming and there's going to be, you know, no Jew and Gentile and all that. That's still a mystery until it happens on Pentecost. But the hereafter is the language he used. It's the verbal clue in the text that tells us that this is related to something else, okay? We'll have more of those clues as well. He says, I'm going to the Father, but we're going to send you a helper. And he will guide you into all truth. And the new, the new age about to come, the church age, is going to feature the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's going to feature the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. A lot of new things that are coming. And this portion of John starts to unveil those. An Old Testament believer cannot wait at the footwashing doctrine, but a New Testament believer will it. And we see that there. Those are the terms that are used in verse 7. Uh, under point C, the different vocabulary for uh, the terms that are here. We have wash and we have bathe, and they're not the same. All right? Nipto is not luo. And if you've already luoed, then you don't need a luo all over again. You just need a nipto. Okay? And uh, it's interesting. Uh, in verse 6 here, Peter was very uh, reluctant. He said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And uh, Jesus said, I, uh, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. One of these over my dead body kind of statements that, you know, Peter would always speak too fast and think too late. And uh, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. All right. And so now Peter realizes, oops, said the wrong thing. And so he's going to fix it by saying something else. (laughs) Well, then don't wash only my feet, but also my hands and my head. All right. And at some point, you just want to tell Peter, stop digging. You're just digging this hole deeper and deeper and deeper. All right? But the doctrine here, and Jesus very faithfully just keeps telling him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. And the point being is once you're saved, that's a one-time only event. You're only saved once and you're saved forever. But following your salvation... You don't need multiple baths all over again, but what you do need in the foot washing is you need the temporal cleansing, such as we have in First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't confuse that forgiveness and cleansing with the forgiveness and cleansing we get at the moment of our salvation. Okay, the first one's the bath. The, sec- the uh, second and subsequent ones in First 1 John one nine are the. Uh, restoration to fellowship when we confess our sins in the third term that's used this is all review we covered this last week the third term that's used under point e is the term katharos for clean katharos for clean k-a-t-h-a-r-o-s number 2513 in the strongest Concordance has 26 new testament uses and uh i believe we looked did we look at all those last week did we anybody have notes Nobody knows. Nobody remembers. Where did I stop last week? I did not. Okay. Okay. We didn't do E. Well, let's look at those then, because this is this is important. The idea of being clean, um, in the Old Testament, being clean meant uh, they had a ceremonial imperative to be clean and cleanness in the Old Testament clean versus unclean was um, associated with whether a person was eligible to participate in the ritual, whether the uh, believer was eligible to partake of Passover or they were eligible to observe the feast or they were eligible to uh, uh, participate in the solemn assembly of, of Israel. And it was not strictly tied to sin, for example. It could be something right and proper and normal. It could be um, childbirth, for example, would leave a woman unclean for, for seven weeks. It... forgot to turn off my phone. First time in 16 years my phone has rung during Bible class. That's amazing. All right. Um, whether somebody was ceremonially unclean, a person had to be cleansed, ritually cleansed in order to go into the tabernacle. Uh, furnishings had to be ritually cleansed. You understand what I'm talking about? In The Old Testament it was clean versus unclean. In the New Testament, we don't have that. We don't have the sense of ceremonial purity. Uh, the, the liturgy in the Old Testament was looking forward to the reality. We operate in the reality. And so we ourselves are cleansed and it's not a a ceremonial thing it's a a reality application okay now the um let's let's just look at a few of these Catharos examples matthew 5 8 john 13 the reference is there it's going to come back again in john 15 and in romans let's just take these uh quickly and run our way through them john or i'm sorry matthew 5 8 Blessed are the pure in heart. There's our term, Kepharos. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And even in the Old Testament, Israel should have understood that the ceremonial clean, clean, uh, being clean uh, should be a reflection of where the heart actually is. So there's the term there in Matthew 5. 8. John 10, uh, 13 is our passage today. We've seen that already in verses 10 and 11. But it comes back again in John fifteen three. The term katharos will be used again in John 15:3. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And we're going to teach this. We're coming up on it very shortly. Uh, but this is the vine dressing work of the father. This is his function. The father does work. He's not retired. He didn't just put a plan together and then kick back and make Jesus do everything. God the Father does work, including the vine dressing work that's described here. And then he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Only believers can abide in the vine. Only believers can bear this fruit. Only believers can function as described here in John chapter 15. Over to Romans. Our next use, Romans 14:20. part of the liberty that we have in the church age. And uh, when believers allow certain things, you got, you got unclean up in verse 14 there. I know and I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So if you've got a believer and they've got a conscience issue that, that uh, struggles in a particular realm of application... Uh, they grew up in a Baptist legalistic background, or what have you, or they grew up in whatever, and they, they just uh, a lot of folks think that dancing is immoral, dancing is sinful, dancing is not appropriate, and just you know that's that's their culture, that's how they were raised, and they have a, a conviction that it's it's not right. Okay, you ever known someone that had a faith conviction against dancing? They thought it was sinful, it was wrong. Okay, so how do we relate to that? Do we just smack them upside the head with a Bible and say, well, dummy, grow up? Right. Get some doctrine. Nothing's unclean of itself. OK. Or do you exhibit the law of love and recognize that, OK, I may have liberty and relax my latitude and grace to, uh, to you know, dance with my wife or what have you. Uh, that dancing does not have to be an immoral thing and and all the rest. The point is, I don't want to cause him to stumble with my liberty cannot be the uh, stumbling block on behalf of the brother. And so um, it says in verse 21 here of this Romans 4, or 20, verse 20 of Romans 14, it says, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Okay. And so this is where something that could be good for you then uh, becomes a stumbling block and that becomes the problem. It is good. Not to eat meat, or to drink wine, or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. I had a coworker years ago that thought movie theaters were were uh, a problem. That uh, that they were temples to Hollywood, and that he wouldn't go into a movie theater. And that was his conviction. And um, and I, I would ask, well, even like rated G movies. I mean, would you go to go see Bambi or something? Or you know, uh, I understand there's some terrible movies out there, but you know, and he said, "No, even there, the, the the venue itself, the place, is a temple where these idol worshippers go and they assemble and they congregate." And he says, "I just, I just don't want to go there." So he rents movies of Blockbusters and takes 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 them home. You know, watches rated G and you know, good clean stuff in his own house and and so forth. And I thought, okay, and uh i'm not critical of that i'll never be critical of that it's a believer who's walking according to his convictions of the bible i will never in a million years be critical of that Uh, i don't happen to share the same conviction but i appreciate i think there's too far too few believers that you know base their lives and their decisions on what the bible says to begin with so here's a man trying to do that i'm gonna i'm gonna be thankful for that so then, how do I apply this in verse twenty and twenty-one? I don't. I don't go to work on a Monday morning and tell them about all the movies I went to over the weekend, right? I don't tell them about how, yeah, I went into, I went into this place and ate popcorn. And <laughs> no, I'm not going to tell them anything about that. That would be uh, that would be harmful. And uh, in earthly terms, it'd just be rude, right? <laughs> all right. Over to First Timothy then. First Timothy one five and three nine. The goal of our instruction is love from a katharos, pure heart, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So again, we find that in the church age, we're operating on the basis of the reality. Not a ceremonial cleanness, but a pure heart. Chapter 3 and verse 9. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, with a clean conscience. Part of the requirements for a deacon. To have that clean conscience. 2 Timothy 1.3 and 2.22 I thank God whom I serve with a clean conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. 2.22 Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. With Those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There's a powerful passage to teach our young people. Three uses in Titus 1.15. Three uses, all in the same verse. Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Now let me ask you, would you limit that verse to only the unbeliever? Or is it possible for a believer who departs from walking in the light, uh, what, what is it if we don't have a clear conscience? What is it when believers don't maintain that clear conscience? When they don't obey the imperative to flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness and faith and peace with those who have the, the pure heart? Uh, I think this is a snare for believers, too, to be mindful of. That if you're not occupied with Christ, if your mind is not centered on the purity of the truth of God's Word, remember Philippians 4, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is lovely. All right, let your mind dwell on these things. Well, now, that's a command for us to obey, but we don't always obey it, do we? And what happens when we disobey it? What happens when we allow our minds to dwell on what is not pure? Well, I think this verse applies. So, uh, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving. And any time you stop walking by faith, this describes you. The unbelief of the believer. It's an important principle. Nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Their mind and their conscience are defiled. And so we have to cleanse ourselves of all defilements of flesh and spirit. And then finally, Hebrews 10:22. The good news is, is that we received our bath at the moment we were saved. And so we can enter within the veil. And we get to enter within the veil. We're within the veil this morning. time we assemble together, Christ is in our midst. We're within the veil. We are in the Holy of Holies. It says in Hebrews 10:19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All right, so we are clean. We are cleaned and washed. And this happened the moment we were saved. The moment we were saved, we were prepared. Now think about the priesthood. This is how we began our priesthood. And this was the same thing for the Levitical priesthood. When they built the tabernacle, when they finished setting it up, they had all the furnishings and everything was ready to go. What's the first thing they had to do for Aaron and his sons? They had to bathe them. That's right. They gave them complete baths and they, and they bathed them and they, and they sanctified their garments. They sanctified everything. And when they were fully bathed, they were ready to go in and operate in their priesthood. Okay, That's the picture for us salvation is our bath and we are prepared now what was the remember at the front gate you had the altar there where where people would bring their sacrifices but then what was the next item you came to after you passed that altar the first thing you came to the laver that's right the laver and what was that for foot washing okay so they already had their bath but they needed their washing they needed their foot washing they needed the the temporary cleansing you understand and so that's what i spell out under point f Eleven disciples had bathed; that is, they were saved. The cleanse, and uh, so they didn't need the, the full bath. Peter was wrong when he said, "Wash my head and my hands also," because we clearly understand that the cleansing needs for a believer are different than the cleansing needs for an unbeliever. Now, I mentioned First John one nine a lot. Let's look at that, and then we'll go back to Psalm fifty one, and you'll see it there too. First John one, and it's unfortunate that um there's a, a couple of pastors in this country that uh, good men, uh, but I think they're they're teaching first John in the wrong way, and they're teaching uh, first John as if it's for an unbeliever getting saved, not for a believer confessing his sins. and it just breaks my heart. Um, but this is uh, what we see here. If we walk in the light, and clearly when you look at verses one through six, it is all directed towards believers. Is directed towards those who are indeed saved, that they have fellowship with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And um, but we've got the uh, snares that may cause us to depart from the light and walk in darkness. And that's what we've got to guard against. And that's when we do when we are in the darkness. That's what we got to confess to be restored back to the light again. So verse six says, "If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth." But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, continually cleanses us from all sin. So here's where we're staying in fellowship and we are walking with Christ. We're occupied with Christ. We're in fellowship with the father. We're in fellowship with the son. We're in fellowship with one another. And by walking in the light, we have a continual ongoing cleansing that takes place. But we may depart from that and commit these sins. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Then verse 9, if we confess our sins, plural, individual sins, the deeds that we do, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's the post-salvation cleansing that happens. And you may do this, uh, you know, once a day, twice a day, a hundred times a day. Just as you're convicted, the shorter the better. Okay? right. I hope you're not sinning a hundred times a day. But... However many times, even if you are, even if you are, 70 times 7, all right, you have that forgiveness, okay? You have that forgiveness. Now, that's different than the needs for a believer. All right, the unbeliever, you know, needs to have the cleansing of, of salvation. Now, when you go back to Psalm 51, we realize that uh, this whole procedure is not unique to First John 1, 9. That even in the Old Testament, even when they brought animal sacrifices to be restored to ceremonial cleanness, they still had their prayer confessions, and they still would uh would first John one nine we say thousands of years before first John one nine was written, they would rebound, they would confess their sins, they would acknowledge their guilt to the Father, all right. Psalm fifty one of Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And he realized that he had nine months of not confessing, nine months of hiding it, nine months of denying it, nine months of covering his tracks, including murder to, to cover his tracks. And it's not until he's convicted and the, the day that baby's born that Nathan comes and convicts him. So nine months of carnality. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Be gracious to me according to your loving kindness. Anytime we confess our sins, it's because he's faithful and just because he is a God of grace. It's not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it. We certainly have not According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. So is this uh, is, is David asking you to get saved here? Is this his salvation all over again? No, not at all. It's conf- it's the confession of a believer. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, is he, is he bringing a, a sacrifice? Is he bringing a goat? Is he going to, through a Levitical priesthood to be ceremonially cleansed and to be restored to the Levitical structure? No. This is his prayer life. This is his prayer confession. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. You know, unless you're so far gone, where your conscience is seared as with an iron, where your heart is so hardened, where the scar tissue has so uh, built up, unless you're that far down in the road of, of darkness, you're going to have your sin. God's going to use your sin. God's going to use this to convict you. He's going to use this. He's going to bring it before your mind. He's going to remind you of this again and again and again. It's part of His... Discipline it's part of his chastisement. And um, when that happens, be thankful. <laughs> be thankful that he keeps reminding you, haunting you as it were. It's a good kind of haunting. Because uh, if your conscience is still bothered by it, that's the Father's way of waking you up and, and prompting you to confess. If it doesn't bother you anymore, and you don't even give it a thought, and you, you can so bury it in your conscience, and then, boy, that's danger. That's danger. That means you're growing comfortable in your uh, darkness okay that's called hardness of heart against you you only i have sinned and done what is evil in your side we would kind of think he sinned against uriah right <laughs> you know sinned against him when he cheated on him with his wife and, and, and then murdered him but uh no those were offenses clearly those were offenses that would require uh restitution and and, 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 and things like that. But when you're talking about sin, sin is only against the absolute standard of God's righteousness. So try to make a difference between a sin and an offense. God, Uriah doesn't have the universal standard of righteousness that David violated. Uriah himself is a sinner. Um, the sin is only against God, even when offenses may, uh, may impact our fellow uh, human beings. All right. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Wonderful uh, reference here to the total depravity of man and our lost estate in Adam. Uh, We're all sinners by birth, by nature, by practice. That's our lost estate. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. It breaks my heart that gets used in a salvation context. So often it's not a salvation passage. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Now, one of the disciplines the father does is he takes away our capacity for that. The longer that you stay in carnality, the longer that you resist the imperative to confess, the longer that you prolong your time of darkness, you have no capacity for true joy. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Physical consequences of your sin. Hide your face from all my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. This is why I'm taking the time to walk all the way through this passage. I think there's things here we don't consider. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Part of that cleansing. And then he says, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, depending on how long your carnality has been, when you come out of it very early, I say you're out of the woods, but you're not far out of the woods. Okay, And you might be starving, but you don't even know how starving you are yet. Create in me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. I think there's a pattern here that I'd, I'd like to do more work on. A pattern here where we can even surrender our volition to the Father and say, Father, give me a greater hunger. Renew the spirit within me. Right now, my volition is very damaged. Right now, my... My I'm weak. My conscience is weak. My spiritual life has been a wreck in these recent months. So I want you, Father, to give me the steadfastness I don't have right now. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Uh, We don't have to worry about verse 11. He'll never take away the Holy Spirit from us. Old Testament believers, though, that was very much a consequence. Um, Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And notice, sustain me with a willing spirit sustain me with a willing spirit here too i think it's uh, a privilege we have to say not my will but thine be done <laughs> it's our delight to say father you created me with volition but i want to give it right back to you father i want you to be at work in me to will and to do of, of your good pleasure um, you know if i'm left to my own devices my own willpower i'm gonna go right back to my vomit again i'm gonna go back into the woods where i've been these last recent weeks and months so I think this is a, a neat pattern for believers coming out of prolonged darkness, where we have to recognize that we're we're pretty fragile in the early stages of a recovery uh, from from a circumstance like that. I'll wrap it up here with um, verse thirteen. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you one of the blessings and consequences of recovering out of darkness is that you now have a, uh, a framework whereby ministry, open doors may be presented to you. And uh, and it may not be pleasant, um, but God will use you to minister to somebody else. And maybe there's a brother in Christ that's on the verge of going somewhere he doesn't want to go. okay, Or a sister on the verge of going somewhere she doesn't want to go. And she doesn't know it, but you do because you've been there. All right. And um, I look at David's eagerness here to teach and to convert. And what's the difference between a transgressor and a sinner? Um, And the idea of uh, being converted here. You know, I think you're going to have a uh, it's it's a repentance thing is to turn back um, the idea that that you can come alongside a brother and say, don't do that. Please don't do that. Okay, and uh, that becomes a pride test for you, doesn't it? (laughs) Because, well, you know, it means that I have to admit something that maybe, uh, you know, I didn't want to tell them that I, you know, been there. (laughs) Okay, I'm embarrassed to talk about my past. Well, okay, glad you are. But what's more important, your embarrassment or rescuing them from going the same road you went? All right. And if you can, uh, you know, love covers a multitude of evils. And if you can turn a sinner from the error of his ways, what have you done? And is it worth it? Jesus Christ despised the shame. let me see to the right hand of the Father. Am I willing to despise the shame and go through an unpleasant circumstance so that somebody can learn from my example? Okay. All right. Anyway, there's Psalm 51. There's other uh, other Psalms and other passages related to that but I I enjoy connecting Psalm 51 with 1 John Um, and then if I was going to teach a complete doctrine of rebound and confession of sin process um, one that I think gets overlooked is in Proverbs 28 and uh, we got to include that as well Um, and that's where you have to confess and forsake your sin I'm sorry, 28, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. You know, the longer you delay on your confession, you think, well, nobody knows. I can get away with this. Well, God knows. You're going to hide it from Him. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. I think that's a concept that has to be included in your First John 1, 9 and in your Psalm 51 and all of your passages where you're describing the confession of sin. Confess and forsake. Confess and forsake. If you're confessing but have every intention of doing it again tomorrow, is that really humble go? Is that really confessing? Is that really going to the Father for restoration to fellowship and, and, uh, and uh, cleansing? I don't believe it is. I don't believe it's an it's a appropriate homologo at that point. All right, so there we are. But now let's understand, why is he giving a, a cleansing illustration? Because he's teaching them what he's going to do tomorrow. Point four. Main point four now in the outline. The work of Christ between laying down and taking up is a work of spiritual cleansing. The work of Christ between laying down and taking up is a work of spiritual cleansing. He's teaching them cleansing on this night in which he's betrayed. And it's the work that he achieves when he lays down and then when he takes up. That's the language here in John 13. He laid aside his garment and he girded his mind for action. He laid aside his garment and he girded his body with a towel. (laughs) But on the cross, what's he going to do? He's going to lay down his soul. <clears throat> and so we see this here. The idea of his life. Well, let me give you the verses. First of all, in John 13, he lays aside his garments in verse four. And then when he's done in verse 12, he lombano, he takes up his garments again in verse 12. So he lays aside, he does his cleansing work, and then he takes up his garments again. And the pattern of what he's teaching there, what I'm calling a prophetic pantomime, OK, just like Ezekiel did, just like Isaiah did, just like uh, Zechariah did. And many of these prophets would do pantomimes, just like uh, Samuel did. You know, Samuel took King Agag and chopped him up into little pieces and sent him all around. Uh, prophets would do visual aids. They would do uh, pantomimes. They would do dramas. They would portray these things. And this is what Jesus is doing here. Laying down and taking up. Uh, we understand this in John 10 that He lays down His life and He takes it up again. He actually sacrifices His soul. John 10:18, the laying down and the taking up of not only His life but also His glory. John 10:18. I think we looked at this a week ago or a couple of weeks ago, did we not? He says, um, "I am the good shepherd. I know my own; my own know me." Uh, verse 17 for this reason the father loves me because i lay down my soul my psuche my soul so that i may take it again and what does jesus christ accomplish in between the time the point where he lays down his soul and the point that he takes it up again what is he accomplishing in between there? salvation yeah the cleansing the spiritual work of cleansing associated with our salvation no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. But even more than that, I think even more than that, even more than the, the, the six hours on the cross, right, or three hours, depending on how you count that, three hours before the darkness, three hours after the, of darkness. But even prior to that, how about when he descended out of heaven and entered into the womb of the virgin? How about when he laid aside his glory? In Philippians chapter 2. That's the example of humility, and that's the application that we're making in John 13. The application is a humility application. He laid aside his glory. And if, uh, you know, you can think of John 13 and John 17 kind of as bookends to the upper room discourse, and in John 13 he's laying aside his garments and washing his disciples' feet and then taking up his garments again. In John 17, He's speaking to his father about the glory that he laid aside and the glory that he wants to return to. John 17. And I love this. This is uh, this is amazing. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth. Now, this is critical because he hasn't gone to the cross yet. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. His work was done. understand that he had a purpose for his life and he had a purpose for his death. And what he's speaking about here is the purpose for his life and he says that's over. I've done the work you have I have accomplished the work which you have given me to do. I have glorified you on the earth. The work of Jesus Christ on the earth was to glorify the Father. No one has seen God at any time but the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus Christ revealed the Father and he says this is now done. And he finishes this in the upper room the night in which he's betrayed and then uh, the next day he'll go out and he'll do the work For his death. Then in verse 5 he says, Now Father, glorify me together with yourself, notice now, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. See, he had laid that aside. He came in humility. He came not with power and great glory. He came in humility. He came as a babe in the manger and swaddling clothes. And and, um, he laid that all aside. But now there's a time to take it up again. What I love the fact is, when he comes in Second Advent, it's in power and great glory. He comes, and the, the, the light of his face is shining like the sun shining in its strength. And we see that. Hopefully, we're familiar with Philippians chapter 2, because this is supposed to be our attitude. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The footnote in the New American Standard Translation says, laid aside his privileges. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, also, God highly exalted him. Now, I didn't read, I should have read further down in John 17. He asked for his pre incarnate glory to be restored, and the Father's going to give him so much more. He's going to get all the pre incarnate glory back that he's worthy, he's entitled to, of course, because he's God the Son. He has eternal glory as the second member of Trinity. He's got eternal glory as God the Son. And yes, all of that is coming back. Okay? Truth is, he never lost any of it. He just simply laid it aside. He stopped claiming it, stopped exercising it, stopped manifesting it. Um, And all of that will come back and more. The glory that he receives after the cross is a greater glory. It says so in John 17, and we'll teach that when we get to that point. It says so here. It says that what he's going to take up here, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That because he's faithful at the point of the cross, because he's sacrificed his own spiritual life, God the Son, Jesus Christ, in his humanity, became spiritually dead, separated from his Father, separated from the Holy Spirit, a living body in pain and anguish on the cross with a dead human spirit separated from the fellowship with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. I can't even grasp this, okay? But because he did... Because he did, then the reward he's blessed with now is above anything he ever had before. The name which is above every name. The resurrected and glorified God-man has a name higher than he had before his work on the cross. And we'll see that as we get into John 17. So he laid down his life, he took it up again. He laid down his glory. And the Father gives him so much more. God the Father gives him so much more. Alright, now if you want verses on the cleansing work of the cross, I give them to you here under point C. The cleansing work of the cross. We already saw Hebrews 10.22. But the cleansing work of the cross. The fact that when you came to the cross, you were cleansed. When I came, for me it was September of 1973. Whenever you got saved, when you came to the cross, you were cleansed. And that's clear throughout the New Testament. We understand that. First Corinthians 6:11, Ephesians 5:26, Titus 2:14, Titus 3 verses 5 through seven. and Hebrews, not only is it mentioned in 10:22, but prior to that in Hebrews 9:14, and then what we read already in Hebrews 10:22, the cleansing work of the cross. And because of this, I think this is the basis for the confusion that's there. And believers don't rightly divide the word of truth, and they just say, "Oh, cleansing, it's got to be the same thing." And they so I was cleansed when I got saved. So this First John 1, 9 cleansing has got to be the same thing. No. Rightly divide the word of truth. Understand. The cleansing at salvation is different from the cleansing of confession. Just like the bath is different than the foot washing. Okay. And so if you can get that across to whoever it is you're dealing with, then uh, you will have accomplished something. I had a three-hour flight one time from st louis to austin and never could get this through to the person i was talking to the lady told me she didn't sin she's not a sinner you know she's saved now she doesn't commit any sins anymore I Said ever you know even little things she said, well yeah you know a few things but by and large i'm basically a good person and because i do more good than bad i'm okay that's her view all right and that's it Join me in 1 uh, Corinthians. Let's take a look at this. The cleansing of the cross. The cleansing of the cross. And this, this impacts a lot of our hymns. You know, how many of our hymns talk about the uh, washed in the blood of the Lamb, right? You know, have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It affects a lot of our hymns. It affects a lot of our thinking. And, and we can appreciate it. We can appreciate the bath. But don't forget the washing. Keep short account, stay in fellowship. Alright, first Corinthians six eleven. What I like here in verses nine and ten, you got a description of a life without Christ. The unrighteous. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now they're fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, um, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a long list of, of things. All representative of the carnal life, the life of the unbeliever, the, the man without Christ. They are unrighteous. And anyone that's unrighteous, that's going to be reflective in how they live and what they do. Now, the answer is not to change your ways and quit fornicating and quit drinking and quit... You know, the, the, the provision is not to stop that list of verses 9 and 10. The provision is to get saved. In verse 11, such were some of you. But notice now, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That right there, (laughs) that right there, is why it's so awesome to be saved by grace through faith. All right? And whatever I was before I was a believer, I'm washed, I'm sanctified, I'm justified, I'm a child of God. Now, can a believer still covet Sure, but he's not a coveter. He's a saint, washed, sanctified, justified. You see the difference? Can a believer still get drunk? Yes. And he might drink so much that, he's, that he would be what uh, somebody else would call a drunkard. All right, I've known believers that were drunkards. But judicially in the Father's court, he's not a drunkard. He's washed. He's sanctified. He's justified. And in the Father's court, that man's not a drunkard. That's critical that we understand that. So this cleansing is associated with sanctification and justification and what we call positional truth, all the doctrines that relate to the moment of our salvation. And so whatever we were, we're no longer that. We're no longer that. We are declared righteous. We are saints. And we can never lose that. What a blessing. Ephesians 5.26, again, the washing. This is what Jesus does for the bride. Ephesians 5.26, the washing by the water with the Word. It says, Christ gave Himself up for the church so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless the cleansing work of the cross he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her having cleansed her titus 2:14 the cleansing of our salvation Talking about our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We were redeemed and we were purified. And it happened when Jesus died on the cross on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard. You get down to chapter three and you see this. Verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Did you earn it? Did you deserve it? Of course not. But according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You see that there? Whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we will be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If you're saved, you've had your bath. You've had your bath. You are washed. Regeneration is your washing. That's your bath. And the last passage, Hebrews 9. As I said, we already saw 10. That allows us to enter into the Holy of Holies. But Hebrews nine fourteen, We understand that it took the death of Christ on the cross, that no animal sacrifice was going to be sufficient. No animal sacrifice was going to be sufficient. The law didn't get it done. They offer it continuously, year by year. It never makes perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer had a consciousness of sins. But the point is, is that it never stopped. It was always had to be repeated year after year after year. In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But now, what is it replaced by? The once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So verse 8 says, After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, he says, Behold, I come to do your will. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. We have the reality. Theirs was just an animal ritual. Hmm. Verse 14. For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Those who are sanctified. Connect verse 14 to verse 2 and you see that that perfection and sanctification is a cleansing of your conscience. Alright. In having your hearts cleansed and your conscience sprinkled clean, we enter within the veil and we can operate in our priesthood. All right. When we come back next week, we're going to move on to point five. It has subpoints A through E, and that'll wrap this up. Um, the application of this demonstration is not to replicate a ritual without reality. In other words, should we as a church, should we have a foot washing ritual? Should we have a Sunday where we designate, this is foot washing Sunday, and everybody lines up down the center aisle, and the pastor sits up here, and, and you just step forward and, and I wash your feet. And then you step away and I watch the next person's feet and, and so forth. Um, is that what this does? Does this chapter present us with a new ritual or does it give us a reality that we're supposed to imitate? And that's what the main point five. It does not give us a ritual, but it presents to us a reality that we are to live out humble service on behalf of the body of Christ. The application of this demonstration is not to replicate a ritual without reality but to live out the reality in humble service on behalf of the body of Christ. And this will be our development starting in verse 12, going down to verse 20 of uh, John chapter 13. And as I said, we'll have some points A through E. And that's uh, material that we'll uh, we'll get to next week. Any questions before I close in prayer? No questions. I confused you so badly you don't even know how to ask a question. That's that's terrible. Yes, ma'am? Yeah, I backed up in in Hebrews ten. My apologies, I backed up in Hebrews I'm sorry, Hebrews nine. I backed up in Hebrews nine prior to verse fourteen to show you the connection with verse two. Yeah. And so no no, I'm sorry. That was my confusion. Um, in Hebrews 9, uh, verse 14. Oh, you know what? I was even reading from the wrong chapter. Um, in Hebrews nine fourteen, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's the verse I was supposed to read, was nine fourteen, And instead, I was pointing out in verse chapter 10 and verse 14 when you connect it to verse 2 you have the same thing taught all over again so you can add uh 10 2 and 14 to the ones that you see on the screen Hebrews 9:14 Hebrews 10 2 14 and 22 and you'll have a complete picture on that I think my apologies I read the wrong uh read the wrong chapter on that All right no no I'm uh, I read the wrong chapter All right well Lord's in charge of that, too. Father, thank you for your truth. Thy word is truth. I pray that each one of us would recognize the importance of foot washing, the importance of uh, keeping short accounts, Father, being restored to fellowship as quickly as we're convicted, not uh, waiting days and weeks and months, not with prolonged darkness, Father. We just make matters worse the longer it goes. And beyond that, Father, I pray for the uh, humility that this passage illustrates as well. That we would be willing to serve one another in, uh, in a sacrificial way related to cleansing, Father. And I pray that we'll understand this as we continue to study it next week. Thank you for being faithful. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.